Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Justin, I wanted us to continue on Sawbones this week to talk about uh, things that are relevant to, you know, the issues of the day, to mm. to the protests that we're seeing, to the uh, the numbers, how many people are speaking out against police brutality, especially when it concerns the black community. And um, in that in that effort, in addition to protesting and donating and all of the other things that you're, you're encouraged to do to help, one thing that I, as a white person, have been trying to do more of is uh, learn, mm. listen and learn. And in in that pursuit of knowledge, which I, I will be the first to admit I have not done enough of. You know, I have not I have not studied um, not just black history, but all history, the truth, uh, our history enough to really, really understand all of the context for the events of the day. You know, even if you feel like you do and you you already are on the right side of this issue or the right side of history, I guarantee you, if you're not a person of color, you have more learning to do. There's more reading you can do. And one thing in particular. Not, does it have to be reading is kind of what I, you said more read. Does it have to be reading, though? I'm in for sure. The reading, though. Woof. You know, I, I got to say, Justin, actually, in preparation for this episode, not only have I done reading, but I did get to watch a movie. So it's kind of fun. Like that one day in class when you have the substitute. Mm-hmm. And he's like, anyway, here's Mr. Holland's opus. I'll check back with you all in an hour and a half. So I well I thought you would appreciate that it, that there's a movie you can watch to help learn this history much or a so, podcast you can listen to there you go right now uh, I I want to thank uh, two people who alerted me to this one we got an email from Chloe who mentioned this is a potential topic thank you and two I saw a Twitter thread from Claire Willett who uh, alerted me to an area of history that I. I don't I didn't have much understanding of and I think my vague impressions were to say the least incomplete. Mm-hmm. And that's the history of the Black Panther Party and specifically the work that they did in the public health realm. It's been interesting to as we go back and reexamine stuff like this um at first, it's very scary to talk about something that you thought you understood about the world and how it works and your own history. Um, 
and have it completely dismantled in front of you. I'm now finding it kind of invigorating. Like I, I find like the more of this I, I'm sort of trying to immerse myself in and learn. Uh, like you when you mentioned the Black Panthers, like Justin, what do you think uh, when I say Black Panthers? You said when we first started this. And the stuff that popped into my head was the stuff that I had been shown, told my entire life, which is, you know, a militant group, a violent group of uh, black people that were very angry and and dangerous and et cetera. You think of that's, the, the image it. of the berets and the guns. Yes. And that's, and to be fair, when I started to think, what was I taught in school? I don't know if I was taught anything. Yeah. I, I don't know if this was discussed much other than like a side mention in the probably in a chapter about civil rights, probably in relation to Martin Luther King. Probably in February. Probably in February. But I don't think, and I think that uh, white people need to understand that knowing black history is knowing history. And if you think that that is a subsection, something separate, no, you don't know your own history. You don't know the history of this country. And only by understanding that are you gonna have a really good context for what is wrong today and what needs to change today and how much it needs to change, the the extent of the change that needs to happen. Um, so I had the same vague impressions. Uh, I went, If you had asked me, I would have pictured somebody with a beret and a gun, and I thought, well, they definitely were on the right side of the issues, civil rights, I would agree with that, but they, they believed in violence and I wouldn't, so that was the whole impression I had. I knew almost nothing else, and... I don't want to say it's like a lot of things. History is complicated. People are complicated. And at the same time that you have people wringing their hands over the protests right now saying, well, but not the looting, but we shouldn't be looting. And you have to understand that when people are angry and they've been oppressed and they're standing up for their freedoms and their rights, however they do that. I support that. And I know that's complicated and I know that's not so clear cut as well, but I don't believe in violence. Sometimes things aren't clear cut and we have to be comfortable with that. And I think the Black Panther Party is a good example of that. Certainly when they started, they were founded in October of 1966 in Oakland, California by Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. And they were definite, there definitely was a, uh, an, a, like a, an edge of violence to the beginnings an, an intention that not an intention to do violence, but an understanding that if it is necessary, it is the action a that will, will be taken. A willingness. Yes. Uh, and it was to be fair, it was based on the idea that they were watching their their friends, their family, their community, other people of color be beaten, killed and unfairly incarcerated by the police. And they wanted to put a stop to it. And this was and they knew at the time that the protests, the marches, the sit ins, it wasn't changing. The system was so uh, based in white supremacy that these actions, important and meaningful, they may be, were not going far enough. And so the original you know, intention was what we're going to do is go to places we will patrol the streets and when we see an arrest happening we'll stop we'll get out of our car and we'll watch and we will be an intimidating presence because we'll have guns 
That was very that was very key to it. The the being armed was very much part of it because the message was we're watching you and we can do something about it if you're not careful to the police officers who were involved in the arrest. And if there was no evidence of police brutality, things could proceed without any sort of confrontation. But if there was, the Black Panther Party was willing to to step in. And there certainly were conflicts that ensued from this. I am not going to lead you to believe that there were never uh, shootouts and um, shoot-ins and all kinds of violent confrontations between various members of the Black Panther Party and law enforcement. However, that is not the entire story of the Black Panthers, which is, again, I think something a lot of people don't know. Um, Within a few years of its inception, the party realized that it needed to do more than just protect people, than just be sort of the the guardians. Mm -hmm. Um, they, They also needed to connect to the community, reach out to the community, and find ways of supporting the black community that their that their government wasn't doing. I mean, they saw that gap that their one of the one of the easy things that they they said is, you know, research came out around this time that children do better in school, pay closer attention and have less fatigue if they get breakfast in the morning. A simple I mean, this this study was released. Yeah simple idea right well known at this point i think everybody's yes and so the black panther party said well we could feed kids breakfast that's something we can do uh because in their community a lot of children of color were not getting breakfast in the morning uh, usually related to socioeconomic issues and again the systemic racism that we talk about in housing in access to you know healthy food and clean water and all that for all those reasons uh, poverty as well kids weren't getting breakfast and they said you know what we're going to fix this so they began to set up free breakfast programs and it was very simple they would buy all the ingredients they had a place where they would advertise from these hours bring your kids breakfast is free and they would serve breakfast to kids. And this was a really impactful program. They At, at their height, they were providing up to 20,000 meals a week at various locations. There was It started with one site and then it spread mm-hmm. throughout to different parts of the community. And as the Black Panther Party spread throughout the United States and there were different chapters in different areas of the country, this program followed. So this was a huge impact, just feeding kids breakfast. And it was a very direct way of uh the party connecting to the community you know uh saying like we're here we're not just here to you know carry guns we are here to serve our community um and and it was a hugely impactful program they started um and from that it began to be clear like this is one aspect but and we you know just like i think people are saying now we had been focusing purely on the law enforcement, criminal justice angle of this. But here's another area where racism needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. You know, black kids disproportionately weren't getting breakfast. Let's Mm -hmm. fix it. What other areas could we address? Which is the same conversation if people aren't having, if 
white people, I should say, aren't having, they should be having today, which is this problem goes beyond police officers. This problem goes to every institution, as we talked about last week, healthcare, everything in this country. And the Black Panthers said, well, if the whole system is broken, we need to start addressing every bit of it we can. And access to affordable health care and specifically a national health insurance plan Hmm. was a big part of that. Um, They believed now part of that is that the the Black Panthers were very anti-capitalist. And so it is not surprising that a capitalist medical program as we have in this country, a capitalist medical system would be one target. Um, they they very much saw that as broken. Uh, many people living in the black community did not have insurance or didn't have access to a doctor. There were no offices nearby. There wasn't a hospital that would serve them. Um, they And they couldn't afford the care. And so they saw that there was a disproportionate amount of lack of preventive services, um, lack of chronic disease management, lack of screening programs, all kinds of things for the communities of color. And so in 1972, as part of their uh, 10-point program, the Black Panthers also added uh, health. We want completely free health care for all black and oppressed people was added in 1972. And if you notice, I think it's really interesting. It's not just for all black people. Um, The Black Panthers were advocating for completely free health care for everyone who is oppressed. Hmm. So other communities of color and even poor white people at this point in history. Well, it's one of those things that is so essential to us that no other part of the equation matters so much if health is not addressed. Yes. It is the it is the the uh, the standard against which everything else has to be sort of judged. Mm-hmm. And and they believed that the uh, the government should be providing it. And there were lots of I mean, again, the idea. I think a lot of people have looked at in the recent uh, elections and and debates among various politicians talking about the way to fix healthcare in this country. People look at socialized medicine, single payer health care as like a radical idea. There's nothing radical about this idea. The it's it's an old idea. The people have been advocating for it for a long time, especially people who are oppressed have been advocating for it for a long time. And throughout the world, it's not a radical idea. And so when the Black Panthers were looking to other places in the world where they had health care for all their citizens and saying, We want the same thing here. Yeah. That's a thing the government should do. This is not a radical idea. It's a good idea. Yeah. We just still haven't done it. So they did it. They began to establish free clinics in 1969. They were called the People's Free Health Clinic. Uh, The first one that they established was in Kansas City. And uh, soon after that, they would mandate that every chapter throughout the country establish a free clinic. And a dozen were set up between then and 1973. Um, and a, a quote, I found a quote from the Black Panther paper in, in a 1970 that sort of outlines what most clinics were capable of providing. They were all a little different, but this was kind of the basic idea. The clinic will offer absolutely free the services of a family doctor, including checkups, immunizations, blood tests, and health education. A major emphasis of the clinic will be on preventive medicine. People will be encouraged to have regular checkups and to come to the clinic at the first sign of medical troubles. And they went a little bit even beyond 
this sounds like kind of your routine primary care office, right? right? Or, or urgent care plus primary care office. Other primary care does urgent care too, but all combined. Uh, but beyond that, they had classes in first aid, in lab techniques, teaching people skills that they could use. Um, and it was all staffed with volunteers from hospitals in the area, from the community, uh, people who wa- wanted to be, I mean, because if you think about this period of time, people who wanted to be part of the civil rights movement, part of changing things in this country in a real fundamental way, but didn't know the best way their their skills could serve that cause. This, If you were a medical student, if you were a physician, if you were a nurse, if you were a lab tech, if you were able to learn that stuff, if you were whoever, that this was a way you could serve the community. And it, I think that like uh, the existence of a program like this and, you know, this is still happening today. The existence of programs like this should al- be proof of the problem. Like it, it because there needs to be facilities like this, like the gap is proven like there it's there you know you know what i mean like the the inequality and and uh immorality of the medical system i think is proven out every day when you see the existence of places like this I think, that are attempting to by hook or by crook fill in the the gaps it's it i think that's a really important point you make justin i've seen people hmm, say it before say it again slower <laughs> i've seen people say it before you didn't say it again yeah, just just. I think that's time. a really important point you make, Justin. Can you do it one more time, but hit the really like, Justin? We have oh. to move forward. With okay. This yep. Fair. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that when you see, and we all see this constantly, a family set up a GoFundMe page mm-hmm. to pay for medical bills. Yes. When you see a jar for donations at the counter at a convenience store for a local fan it's usually that it's usually to help pay medical bills or surgical bills or or cancer treatment bills or whatever when you see that every time you see that and i know you do you see it on facebook all the time that is a failure of the american medical system every single time why why does that happen and the and exactly the the panthers saw there was a need this was a failure specifically with their community with the black community but for all oppressed people, this was a failure, and they sought to correct it. Uh, we wanted to do something a little bit different this week for the billing department, which we're about to head into briefly. We're going to be donating all of our ad revenue this week uh, to the Brianna Taylor Fund. Brianna Taylor was a 26-year-old African-American emergency room technician who, uh, in March, police uh, executing a uh, search warrant incorrectly uh, burst into her home and murdered her in her bed. Um, today, as we're recording this, June 5th would have been her 27th birthday. And no arrests have been made at this point in this case. So we're donating our ad revenue to a fund set up by her family. Um, if you would like to uh, donate to a, a fund at this time, or uh, even if you can't do so with money, there's ways to donate even without money or education, whatever resources. If you go to blacklivesmatters.carrd.co, you can find everything that you need. Anyway, to the billing department. Let's go.
So, as I was saying, the clinics were, they were staffed by volunteers. They were supplied by no donations. I was reading one article that was really interesting. Uh, one of the volunteers at the Boston Clinic wrote about their experience. And they were saying that um, when they first started, like, okay, we're going to set up a clinic here. They had to get, uh, they got a trailer to service the building. And then they had to, like, hook it up to electricity. And <laughs> I, they used like a street lamp to like feed the electricity off of. Wow. So it was really like a grassroots effort to like build these clinics, fill these clinics, staff these clinics. Um, it was a really impressive, I mean, cause that's a hard thing to do. That's a very difficult thing to do. And they were able to do it at multiple sites throughout the country, um, to serve a local community of, of the underserved. Um, in establishing these clinics, they also identified an under-researched area of medicine that they thought they could make a difference, uh, sickle cell anemia. Hmm. So, uh, as you may already know, I don't think we've ever done a full show on, on sickle cell. I don't think so. Uh, but this is, a, this is a condition that primarily affects the black com community. And although it had been first described, uh, as in they saw these sickle-shaped shells under a microscope and talked about it back in 1910... There was very little effort to screen for it, to develop treatments for it. Even to this day, I would say it's an underfunded area of, of medicine, underdeveloped uh, in terms of treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, the Panthers thought, you know, the first thing, if we're going to learn more about this, we need to figure out who has it and, and like help people get into medical care if they have this condition and don't know. And so they developed a national screening program for sickle cell anemia. They would recruit people like medical students from different communities to go into the community to people's homes or to a location within the community and perform the test there. Uh, initially, they were getting kits like donated for this purpose, but eventually they ran out te test kits to perform the screening. And so there was a, a Harvard graduate student in biology, Bill Wallace, who made his own. Oh, wow. Made his own screening test um, with his skills as a as a graduate student in biology. Um, and uh, they would use these tests the, the night before the screening. The Panthers would basically go out into the community, put up a ton of flyers, let everybody know, hey, look, tomorrow we're going to have this screening program. You know, this is really important. You need to get checked for this. Uh, and then they would the next day send out the students, the doctors, whoever in their white coats would go out into the streets and find people who needed to be tested, who wanted to be tested and screen them for sickle cell anemia. And they had a whole pro uh, process in place once they located people who tested positive to refer them to willing doctors within the community, to hospitals for further treatment and, and for um, genetic counseling and everything. So they did it from front to back. The, Cause that's always the concern, right? If you have a screening program once you get those results, you you better have people. I mean, these these are the uninsured in a lot of cases. You better have somebody who's willing to take care of these people. And the, the Black Panthers organized all of that so that they got these people into treatment and to see doctors and all that, too. Um, so it was an incredibly effective program. Um, it led to eventually in 1972, the National Sickle Cell Anemia Control Act. Um, this was like the one thing that eventually like Nixon would get on board with yeah. was the sickle cell program. Um, Maybe he wasn't such a bad guy, Sid. No, he was huh. uh, bad guy. But um, this, this actually, the, the actions of the black Panther party really 
increase the national focus on research, funding, and uh, treatment for this at the time. Now, again, I would say this effort was on ter- in, once it was handed off to the United States government and the powers that existed was inadequate in the long run because there still has not been enough research or, or effort in this area. Um, but the reason it started at all was this effort from the Black Panther Party. Um, in addition to all these services and their screening programs and everything else, they also, depending on which location, would provide things like drug and alcohol rehabilitation. They gave away food. They gave away clothing. They would do things like, we'll take you to your doctor's appointments if you're elderly and you need an escort. Um, they opened a school at one point that offered classes and things like first aid and economics. Hmm. Um, there were lots of other services that the Black Panther Party provided to the communities, these like survival programs that they would provide to say, your government is failing you. And until they'll change, we're going to try to fill that gap. Um, and so they did a lot of these programs. Now, eventually, as we're going to get into it, the Panthers would their party would start to decline and the clinics would close as the Black Panther Party had fewer members and sure, less resources right. and, and everything. Um, but and, and it's hard if you want to say, like, what impact, what lasting impact did that have on healthcare today? I don't think you can deny that when you look at something like a federally qualified healthcare center today, something that is like funded by the government to provide care to the underserved, to provide care to the uninsured to, or to the underinsured. I don't think you can deny that there is at least some impact from these free health clinics, from these people's free health clinics in that in these FQHCs that we see tons of in places like West Virginia today serving mm-hmm. underserved populations of all colors. So I definitely think that in, in addition to as I was reading the accounts from some of the doctors and medical students and people who volunteered in this, this this feeling that our healthcare system is so broken and that the, the disparities that exist um Part of it is the is the fact that it's a free market healthcare system, which makes absolutely no sense. And these free clinics and a national healthcare system, I think that that spirit definitely exists, even though it has not been able to become the status quo. Yeah, uh, I think that those ideas and the idea that universal healthcare is a social justice issue, I, I definitely think you can find roots of that in in these people's free health clinics as well as i mean they were not the only ones with these ideas sure, but sure. but i think you have to to draw some parallels there um as just a kind of an ending to this story and i i think that again this is one of those areas where i remember one time my grandfather gave me a book called lies my teachers told me and i thought it was a very daring book for my grandfather to give me when i was young <laughs> Uh, and it was based on the idea that the history you think you know is not the the truth. Right. There are lots of things that have been filtered, especially in this case, through the lens of white supremacy and taught to you as if it is the only truth. And you don't know the whole story. Um, and I think that in that spirit, learning more about the Black Panthers organization was part of what I wanted to do to do this show. Uh, the film that I watched in addition to reading was the Black Panthers Vanguard of the Revolution, which if you're interested in learning more about the Black Panther Party, I would highly recommend you watch this documentary. 
There are lots of interviews from some of the key players in the party at the time uh, to, to kind of give you a better understanding of, you know, not just the organization as an abstract, but the, the people who were in it and what they did and what they were able to accomplish and what their goals were um, more on an individual personal level. I, I would really highly recommend it. Uh, the as the Panthers grew and expanded their goals as they were achieving all of these things that the government was failing to achieve on community levels, um, they got more support from the public at large. Uh, they began to work with other liberation movements. They began there were international chapters. They spoke out against the Vietnam War. Um, it initially was a very male movement. It was a very kind of macho, typically male mm -hmm. thing. But uh, at its peak, the majority of members would be female. Hmm. And so even though that was still a struggle at the time, there were there were definitely the beginnings of like some women's liberation within this movement as well. Uh, females taking some of the more um, what you would consider like masculine roles, carrying guns, you know, guarding the party and. Uh, men taking over some more traditionally fe female roles, feminine roles of like cooking breakfast for kids. Right. Um, you definitely saw those beginnings. Uh, what would the what would eventually be lead to kind of the fall of the party? Um, in part, was largely due to FBI interference, J. Edgar Hoover, and then eventually Nixon. Um, they used something called they used a counterintelligence program that was called. Cointelpro. And this is something that any of our listeners of color probably already know all about, but I bet a lot of our white listeners do not know much about. And I mean, I obviously fairly well versed in what that is, but I would love a recap for the listeners. So this counterintelligence program were it was basically made up of FBI agents finding ways to dismantle the Black Panther Party from the inside because they saw them not necessarily as a violent threat, although they may have said that, that it was really a threat to the status quo and to white power. It was a, it, they, they, their ideas were garnering widespread support and they didn't like that. And so they found a number of ways to vilify the Black Panthers. Um, they would, in some communities, spread rumors that they were snitching to the police to turn public support against them. In some communities, they would accuse them of conspiracies. There's uh, it, the documentary covers well the there were 21 leaders who were all arrested and accused of a fake bombing plot at one point. Um, they would to the American public, to all the white people, they would paint the Black Panthers as scary and the very racially loaded racist term aggressive was often used um, to make the average white person watching the news at home afraid of the Black Panthers and try to prevent them from supporting them. Um, they declared them at one point the biggest threat to America. Uh, and of course, America was in a war at the time. So to say the biggest threat to American citizens is the Black Panther Party was again another way the government was trying to turn public support against them they even did things like sent letters to prominent uh, party members spouses to say hey just so you know your husband or wife or whatever is cheating on you and accusing them of infidelity and trying to create even like marital discord mm -hmm. so like at a very personal level they tried to destroy the party and the party members um 
there is a uh, and and as as Claire Willett points out in the Twitter thread that first led me to start investigating some of this. Um, when you hear today, uh, like a lot of, again, like pearl clutching from politicians about like, oh, it's not that I don't support peaceful protest. Of course I do. But do you have to be so violent about it? When you hear that, that is the that is the rotten fruit from the seeds of Cointelpro. That's what you're hearing. You're hearing that. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover would love that because that mentality, that idea has permeated uh, our power structures and the American public and our understanding of our history to this day. Um, and of course, the culmination of this movement was Fred Hampton. And I would occur- encourage you, if you are a white person who doesn't know much about Fred Hampton, um, please, please read, please study, please, please search out more than just a podcast episode about Fred Hampton. He was young. He was charismatic. He was the activist that the moment needed um, because not only was he an incredibly powerful speaker uh, and well versed on the issues and able to, you know, kind of coalesce all of the frustration and anger into action, into like, here are the things we want and need and speak to the people, to the power structures that existed to try to get them to understand. Um, But he had, he could build that coalition between the NAACP, between the Panthers, between the church community, between activists from uh, the Latino community. There was a group even called the Young Patriots who were a group of uh, poor Southern white people who had migrated to Chicago to look for work. And again, like they, they were like mainly from the Appalachian area. And he was able to build this coalition between all these disparate groups who really had common goals to fight racism, to fight for civil rights, to fight for equality and then fight for all these other things that would that would help all oppressed people. Um, and I mean, he really, again, was the leader the moment needed. But uh, somebody who can change things like that is really dangerous. Mm. And the the government knew that the FBI knew that the police knew that. And so uh, in early December 1969, the FBI, in conjunction with the local police, uh, charged the apartment where he was staying and murdered him and uh, murdered another member of the Black Panthers who was there. The um, the criminal case against the police uh, initially failed in 1970, but initially, but eventually, a civil case would succeed in 1982 to benefit the families of the of those who were murdered. Um, and it's only like with the understanding more in more recent years of the FBI's complicity in the Cointelpro program do we really know? I mean, he was assassinated. The government had him assassinated because his ideas were too dangerous for the for the white status quo. Um, and if you don't if you don't know that history again, I'm talking to fellow white people. This is a history you need to read because it is it is our history too, and it's the history of a country that could have at many times gone in a better direction, but chose to continue to oppress, chose to continue to pursue white supremacy instead of equity and you know justice. Um, after after their peak in 1970, the, the Black Panther Party continually uh, declined. They were targeted by police. There were lots of wrongful arrests and convictions. And so they they ended up spending a lot of time and energy and money trying to 
um, in like court costs and lawyer fees and all this to try to get people, you know, right. back into the movement. There was a lot of infighting. There were splits among the leadership and eventually um, the party disbanded in 1982. The the things that they fought for, and I would I really advise you to watch this documentary. You can you can see that a lot of the members talk about what we wanted was housing, health care, food, you know, clean water, education, jobs. But, I mean, and I'm not, again, history is complex and people are complex. And this moment is, is complex. Yes, there was violence. Yes, there were guns. And I don't like guns. <laughs> yes, there was shooting. Uh, that was part of it. Um, but I think that, and I, we've seen a lot of it right now with the protests that are going on. If you are a white person, you need to be very careful about criticizing the right way to protest. You don't get to decide the right way for a person to be angry, the right way for a person to demand justice. You don't get to decide that um, because the right way is the way that works. And I, I would I would be outraged about the reasons that people are protesting, not the protests. And I, I think the Black Panther Party is a good illustration of that idea. I've been thinking a lot about racism, and I'm probably alone in that at this point in time, but I've been thinking a lot about it. And, you know, I before all this uh, started, and, and none of this brings me any joy to admit, but um, I, I would have not, I would have considered myself a non-racist person. You know, I'm not a racist. I would say that pretty confidently. Um, and then as, as you and I've done these episodes and as I've continued to like read and watch and listen, you think about why haven't I been told this story? Well, it's because my education was slanted towards the perspective of white people. I have a racist education. Last week we talked about how this medical system, which is such a big part of our lives, is itself racist. And I we know that capitalism and the 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 especially American capitalism is uh, unjust towards black people. It is a racist system. Yes. And you have to start to wonder, or at least I have started to wonder. And I hope to God that other people are having the same thought. If I grew up with a racist education in a racist uh, capitalist structure, benefiting from a, a racist medical system and all of the other racist institutions, what are the odds, what are the chances that I, even through inaction or, or ineptitude or naivete, don't have racist thoughts, ideas, c concepts, um, even through ignorance, which I would, I, I believe a lot of ignorance is, or sorry, a lot of racism is based in ignorance. Mm -hmm. If I've allowed myself to remain ignorant, then that in itself is racist. And like, I, it, it has not, again, these revelations do not bring me joy, but I, I don't know. I hope other white people are, are having the same, or have the, you know, are willing to take that sort of long look in the deep, dark, truthful mirror and see where some of these gaps are in their own sort of education and, and hearts. It's uncomfortable. And it, I mean, it should be. It is uncomfortable. If, if you are a person who felt like 
you were also not racist and and on the naturally on the right side of this issue. And right now, some of the things people are saying to you about about areas where you don't know enough or, or aren't helping enough or aren't doing enough. If it's making you uncomfortable, that's good. It's it, this is un, this is uncomfortable. It's it's something that we weren't doing enough of or any of, obviously, because things would be different. So I would encourage again, I, I think when I when I talk about these things, I think to myself, people of color know this history. Um, people of color know these truths. White people don't. And when 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 this history is put out there as black history, I think you need to understand white people that this is our history. It is the history of our country. It is a history of our our grandfathers and grandmothers and great grandfather grandfather they were involved in these stories and you we often would not like the roles they played and so it is our duty to learn this history and to make sure that the history that is taught 100 years 200 years from now is different um thank you so much for listening to sawbones uh we, we hope you, you found the time well spent i would say um um, thank you to the taxpayers for the use of their song medicines this is the intro and outro of our program. And, uh, thanks to you for listening. We, we appreciate you. Uh, and, uh, we hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of Sawbones. Until then, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.